I came to faith when I was seven years old. I was baptized as a believer at First Baptist Church, Mountain Home, Arkansas. And after that time, I was just trying to think, what's my memory with, with that local church? Here's the first one that popped up. My dad dropped my brother and I off on a Wednesday night. My mom was having choir practice. I was just thinking about this. I don't know what my dad was doing, but he dropped us off and we were in a classroom with some of our friends with no adult supervision, just playing around before Royal Ambassadors. That was the Wednesday night for the, for the kid, the boys. Um, if you grew up SBC kid, maybe Royal Ambassadors is part of your memory. But we're playing around and one of my brother's friends was crouched down and I don't know what we were game we were playing, but I was going to jump over him. And right about the time I got uh, in midair over him, he stood up and just took my legs out. And I just face planted right into the hard floor and bit into my bottom lip. And it was just a mess. Uh, I still have scar tissue in there from that. Again, I don't know what my dad was doing, but, but he eventually found me. Some people were very helpful. That's a memory I had, but that was a sweet church uh, family to be a part of when I was young, a young believer, loved Jesus, and they helped me love Jesus more as a, as a boy. I remember going to Texas A&M University, which was 500 miles from Mountain Home, Arkansas, not knowing a soul other than my brother who was a senior when I was a freshman in a local church there in College Station, ministered well to me, discipled me well. One of my first memories with that church family when I was a college student, I was a freshman and they would host a Disciple Now weekend for freshmen. And it would be homes of, of church families would host a group of students and we would have like Bible study for the weekend. So it was the first night we're in this home, you know, we're all kind of new meeting each other and the university pastor at this local church, he was making a, a stop to all the homes and just, you know, introducing himself and getting to know us. And he came in, met our group. And I remember he asked, he said, does, does anybody have just any questions? Does anybody have any questions? I think he was referring to what's going on this weekend. And there was another guy in my group named Sam. And he, he asked, he was quick. He was ready, locked and loaded with a question. He says, what's the deal with all the Solomon's wives? Buzz. It's a good question. I don't know if that's what the university pastor was looking for, but that uh, guy ended up being my roommate for the next four years. And just a sweet friend who still loves the Lord to this day, helped me love Jesus more. I remember uh, serving on staff at a church, a church plant, young church plant in Charlottesville, Virginia. And it was a season of life where we had entered into, entered into being a, a foster parents, fostering, and just what a sweet church to come alongside of us during that beautiful but difficult season of life. And just bore burdens alongside of us and helped us, just a sweet church family. And then Staples Mill Road Baptist, I've had the privilege of serving as the youth pastor for the past seven years and what a what a blessing it's been just, just knowing people and just being helped and blessed in so many different ways. And the question, just talking about local church experience, what has been your experience? Being a part of a local church, maybe this is a relatively new experience. Maybe it's been just in recent weeks or months or just recent years that you've become part of maybe this local church body. 
Or maybe there's been, uh, maybe similar to my story, like different stops along the way as God moves us for his purposes to different places. And there's been multiple churches along that path that have ministered to us, been a part of our, our spiritual lives. Or maybe it's been Staples Mill Road Baptist, born and raised, lifelong in this body. What a blessing that would be to be a part of this church family for your whole life, maybe whole life as a believer, but I, I definitely praise God. I praise God for his people, praise God, uh, just church families that have helped me, just brought so much joy uh, to my life. They've bore burdens alongside of me and my family through different seasons, just many, many great memories, not all uh, include busting my lip horribly, but many great memories, not perfect, no, no family's perfect and definitely no church family's perfect. Um, just being a part of family is, is sure to bring pain and strife in, in certain uh, seasons and times. And I definitely know many times it's because of my own failings, my own wrongdoing as being a part of the local church body. But if this was all that church was to be, if that was all church was to be, to be a place or a people to do life with, for friendship, for, for food, breaking bread together, fellowship, help. That, I mean, it would be a great thing. It would be a great blessing. If that was, that's all the purpose of the church was, what a, what a sweet thing. However, that's not the primary purpose of the church. That is not the primary purpose of church. And local gatherings in our text today, as we get into it, is going to reveal that to us. My family and I were in a season of transition being sent out by this church and uh, affiliated with the North American Mission Board, the SIN Network, to start a new church, to plant a church in southwest part of Richmond, a census-designated place called Bon Air. Uh, my family, we moved to the city of Richmond in this area just a few weeks ago. Um, if you're unfamiliar, North Chesterfield County, kind of south West Henrico County, and there's a swath of the city of Richmond that uh, kind of makes up a little bit of Bonaire and the surrounding community. There's Bonaire with a four mile radius, you're going to get about 80 to 85,000 people there. And also, the University of Richmond is just across the river within about two, three miles uh, there. And there are definitely some healthy churches in this community, but not enough. Not enough to engage lostness in this community, not enough to make disciples and effectively shepherd God's people to live, to think, to act, to speak in a way that's conforming to Christ more and more. So as this talk about, and we could say that for most places probably on this earth, there's not enough churches to effectively, healthy churches to effectively make disciples. And I'll talk more about what it is, maybe that description or uh, Character, characterizing what a healthy church is in a little bit. But our text today is going to give us, again, the primary purpose of the church and give us ample reason for our local church, for all local churches to urgently seek, urgently seek to be God's means of grace to people who are lost, who are living without the hope of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So if you would take your copy of the scriptures, if you want to look up, find the book of Ephesians this morning. The book of Ephesians, kind of a short letter towards the back of our Bibles. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, if you want to read along with me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth, its integrity, its power, its clarity. I just pray that this time, this morning, nothing about this time would be religious routine. Help us to know your truth, apply it to our lives for your glory and for our joy. Pray that you would do that in your power, according to your spirit's leading. In Jesus' name, amen. If I could title the message, we'll just title it, The Urgency of the Church. The urgency of the church, and this is what the Apostle Paul wanted the Christian community, the churches in Ephesus in the first century, he wanted them to understand that when we were spiritually dead, God made us alive with Christ. Uh, one commentator on this passage puts it like this, by his, God's amazing grace, he made, a, he made our spiritually dead hearts beat. So as we drop into Ephesians, we're going to get the background information just briefly. The context is going to help us to kind of know what Paul's thinking and how we can apply the timeless truth of this word. So Paul had encountered disciples, followers of Jesus. He didn't share with them. Initially, he encountered them on his missionary journeys, and he's going to gather them and spend three years with them teaching them training them in the gospel, teaching them the truth. And so now he writes back correspondence to these churches that he had, and it's recounted in, in Acts 19, that he had spent three years ministering to, and now he's writing back and reinforcing, reengaging, and definitely emphasizing um, the gospel instruction that the church that they had enjoyed kind of under his ministry for three years previously. So unlike Paul's other letters, we don't have a ton of details about the circumstances of this church. There's no present crisis that he's necessarily dealing with in this particular letter. He's writing this letter from a Rome or imprisonment in Rome in AD 60. But as we look here in chapter two, Paul is going to, again, reemphasize the reality of bringing brought from death to life. As you heard it, you read along with me, you can see that's the clear teaching here is this contrast of death to life. Can there be any more stark contrast? And he's saying who they were, this largely Gentile, this non-Jewish church, and who they are now in Christ. He had just written in uh, the, the previous part of the letter, this is chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. Think about the truth he's trying to emphasize. He said in verse 19, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power 
towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. I think he's trying to make a point. And that point is, it's God's power. It's God's plan. It's God's activity. It's what God has done. Things have fallen apart and God brings it back together in Christ, with Christ. So he's emphasizing that, re-emphasizing that to this Christian community that he'd already engaged with for three years previously, but he's reinforcing this truth. He's wanting them to believe it, wanting them to believe it in the first century, these churches in Ephesus. So for us, local contemporary church, do we believe, do we believe it's the same power? It's the same power that raises us from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. Do we believe, man, in Christ? It's God's activity. God does this. And then if so, how is this belief evident in our lives? Do we believe it? Well, how is it evident in our lives? God's people, the church and local context, we must urgently, urgently rely, urgently rely on the power of God to bring spiritually dead people to life. It's the only way. So as we get into looking at this picture of spiritual death, we're going to start there and see this contrast that's made. So the first part, the first three verses of this passage, let's look at this picture that Paul paints of spiritual death. So it starts there in verse one with and. So we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute because we want to see what's it referring to previous. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. So he's making the point, you used to be lifeless. You used to be unable to respond, incapable of anything. Spiritual death, it is evident by constant law breaking, constant breaking of God's laws and commands. Dead in trespasses and sins. And then verse 2, in which you once walked. In which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. He's saying, you used to do things continually, continually like everyone who obeys the ruler of this world, who is Satan, identifying him as the ruler of the world, the adversary, the one who leads the rebellion against the holy God, Satan. He's saying, you used to do continually things in obedience to, to the leader of this world, Satan. And then verse three, this is the picture of spiritual death among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So he says, everyone is like this spiritually dead at one time, everybody's spiritually dead, following cravings, sinful desires, uh, making us deserving of God's wrath. Definitely making us deserving of God's just punishment for sin. He's holy. He's just. Sin has to be punished. And we deserve it in that state of spiritual death. So this picture Paul paints is one that's not morally good. There's no semblance here of someone who, well, they have a good heart. You know, deep down, they're, they're, they're good. This is not the teaching here. This is a picture of total depravity, spiritual death. So is this not the opposite in, in, in some ways of what is taught 
in other places in the world, maybe outside of the church where there's not a biblical worldview, isn't it taught? Well, everyone kind of has a little bit of common good. Everyone's you know decent person. Everyone is good at heart, just kind of messed up, just doing, doing wrong, but they're good at heart. That's not a biblical worldview. It is true. Everyone is an image bearer of God, gives them value. Everyone, because of God's common grace, our existence is not chaos at every turn. I mean, there's definitely people volunteering, making good grades, doing good things, making good money, all these things. Yeah, God's common grace, image bearing, allowing some semblance of a society. Thank you, God, for that. But nonetheless, still that doesn't negate that there is spiritual death apart from something happening. So there's nothing good in us spiritually. Impure motives, maybe with the volunteering. Unholy desires and aspirations, maybe with the good grades. Always and only. Not wanting God, no submission to his divine authority. Being your own God leads to a lot of self-sustaining activities. That's the picture of spiritual death. So he follow, he's going to recount and show Paul describing three things the spiritually dead person follows. So let's look at that. Following the course of this world, all that the world values, the American dream, right? Success, all that the world values, all the influence of the world that don't line up with God's priorities following the course of this world. First John 2, 15 through 16 talks about following the course of the world. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Following the course of this world. What's spiritual death? Following the prince of the power of the air, who we have identified, that is Satan. There's, there's more in this letter about uh, powers and principalities that are all led by in the Greek, archon, the leader, the ruler of the world, identified by Jesus three times in the Gospel of John as the ruler of the world. It's Satan, the adversary. The power behind these principalities and powers that Paul addresses is clearly Satan, the one who leads the rebellion against a holy God. And then the sons of disobedience, the ones who disobey God and follow the ruler of the world. And Paul's going to expound on this. He's going to explain what does it look like to follow the course of this world? What does it look like to follow Satan, the ruler of the world? What does it look like? He describes it in chapter 5. Sexual immorality, all impurity, coveting, filthy speech, idolatry, self-sustaining idolatry, dishonesty. All these things characterize the sons of disobedience, the one who is following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. This is the picture of spiritual death. And then last, following the desires of our body, the craving of our sinful nature. This is spiritual death. Being dead is described here. He goes on in chapter four, verse 18. He says, being alienated from the life of God, excluded from the life of God, the spiritually dead person, nothing to do with, Eternal spiritual life that's given and sustained by God. No part in it. So this is describing this state of spiritual death. Romans 8, 7, and 8 also gives us a picture of 
what this spiritual death is. The mind that is set on the flesh. So it's not spiritually regenerated. It's not set on the things of God. It's following the course of the world and Satan and the desires of the flesh. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So there is no idea that, well, apart from Christ, man, there's a good heart there. There's a good person in there. Everybody's somewhat decent. Yes, there is common grace. Yes, there is image bearing, but those who are in the flesh cannot please God and God is good. So do we believe in this state? Do we believe in this state of spiritual death as the default position? The default position for everyone who exists unless something happens. Do we believe this is the default position for everyone who exists Unless someone intervenes. Uh, I was talking with my grandpa on the phone Wednesday, this past Wednesday. He's 95. He lives in Missouri and he was wanting to catch up and talking about my daughters. And I caught myself like we're kind of in the conversation. I said, I've only talked to my grandpa about my daughter's academic life, like what they're doing in school and extracurricular activities. Now, my grandpa loves Jesus and he cares if his great granddaughters love Jesus. Do I believe that unless my daughters display the fruit of faith and unless I see in them that God has uh, made them from spiritually dead to spiritually alive, do I believe that? Would I not want to share with my grandpa a little bit about my, what I'm discerning in my, my daughter's spiritual condition? You know, should I not talk with him about, you know, this, this is what you can pray for your great granddaughters? Just showing me my, you know, what's significant in my life. It's true that, um, as in all of life, what matters most in parenting is God. As in all of life, what matters most in parenting is God. Who cares? Who cares if my kids have some sort of academic success or they're uh, succeeding in extracurricular activities? If I know that's not going to be used as a platform for the gospel, I have to urgently intervene. But explain the, the fruit of faith, man. Just knowing that it doesn't matter if there's success in life, if someone has not had a life-changing encounter with the truth about Jesus Christ, who cares? There's spiritual death. Spiritual death is their experience. My first experience with death was when I was in fourth grade, had left on a family vacation, and my uncle and cousins were local and they were going to take care of the family dog. He was going to, the dog was going to stay at our home and they were going to come take care of it. We came back from the family vacation and I didn't see, we didn't see the dog. My uncle calls my dad and um, the dog had died while we were gone. And I just remember again, nine or 10 years old, just distraught. Just can't believe this. I remember crying on my bed, praying, God, please bring Mutsy back to life. Bring her back to life. How can this happen? But it was something I did learn about the reality of death that day. I still remember it vividly as just the certainty of it. Again, physical death, it can be unexpected. It's kind of final, this, this awful thing. Uh, I'm sure maybe your first experience of death, far more severe than or more serious than maybe losing a family pet. But nonetheless, um, there's nothing more serious, nothing more severe, I think, in the, the human experience than, than physical death. There's so much around that, but we have to see what Paul's describing here and see that spiritual death, spiritual death, far more serious 
And it's, it's an eternal state. It's an eternal state. Spiritual death, it does make the call of the church urgent. Urgent. So this picture of spiritual death placed here, but aren't we thankful for verse 4? Two of the most beautiful words in all of scripture, but God. Look with me back in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So praise God. Again, if you notice all the past tense language used in the description of spiritual death, you were dead. You once walked. You once lived. You were by nature children of wrath. He's writing to the Christian community in Ephesus and for us who believe and who have been made new by Jesus Christ. That's all in the past. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love. So he's abundantly merciful and loving towards us. So this contrast that we have, again, in our copy of the scriptures, just two little verses, three and four, and you're going to see this immense contrast. It's like driving out of the city limits where there's no street lights and city lights and looking at the starry night sky. Isn't it more brilliant and more radiant when it's darker? So if we can see the contrast with the darkness of spiritual death, the dark, darkness of our total depravity apart from Christ, then we see the beauty of God's love. The beauty of his grace is so much more radiant and beautiful and wonderful. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So we were lifeless, again, dead completely unholy. We were rebels against him and he brought us to life through Christ. God's unmerited favor saves us from spiritual death. He saved us and raised us up, verse six, with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So he regenerates us, resurrects us to be like Jesus and with Jesus forever. So it is Spiritual death is an eternal state, the interruption, the intervening of God, his mercy and grace, and then spiritual life becomes an eternal state. We exist and enjoy now, yes, but now and forever. And it's sealed our assurance of salvation. He seated us with him. Verse seven, so that, so that. So now we get to see why does he do this? Abundant mercy, sealing our salvation. Seating us with Christ. Why does he do that? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So our new life in Jesus is meant and purpose for showing the world for all time. Showing the world from all time God's grace, God's love and kindness. We are an example of his kindness. One commentator puts it like this. We will be trophies of grace. God saying, look what I can do with such a mess. That's who we are. The church will display Jesus to a spiritually dead world. Verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So God's gift of new life and forgiveness is received when he gives you the gift of faith. There is no point where we get the credit. It is not a picture of us taking his hand. It is not a picture of us meeting him halfway, coming to some sort of mental ascent and belief. It's all his grace. It's all him doing the work. We don't get the credit. He's the only one 
worthy of worship. Titus 3, 4, and 5 says this. Titus 3, 4, and 5, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. According to his own mercy, he does this. So is there any thought? Is there any thought that we deserve saving or that we can do anything to earn God's favor? But yet this saving, this new life sp- being made spiritually alive, it does look like something. But we can't tell and discern in our finite still existence or, or minds where, you know, he starts and we end. But we just have to acknowledge it's all him in us. Like I, I think I mentioned, I moved a few weeks ago uh, and I caught myself not just in the days, but in the weeks after, like always taking the wrong way out of here and going back to my old house or or taking the wrong turn and starting to go back to my old house. It is true that the work of grace in our lives is not gonna necessarily be just automatic perfection. You know, we, we just never sin anymore. That's not the experience of one who's been made spiritually alive, but we have to totally depend on Christ. Still, always, every day, still depending on his grace, believing in this grace, believing it's only him always. So totally depending on Christ every day. What does that look like? What does that look like to depend on Christ? What does it look like to uh, experience this grace? It's not always going to look like perfection. It's not always going to look like sinlessness. No, but it has to look like something. So every day remembering. Every day remembering his perfect life. Every day by the, the count under you know, reading his word and reminding ourselves the truth of the gift of the scriptures and seeing his substitutionary death, his powerful resurrection for us. You know, we worship him. There's not anything we have done or can do. Remembering, I'm not, I'm not dead any longer. I don't live there. That's not my old home. I'm now saved and alive. I've got to turn the right way. I'm saved and alive. This is true of me. Man, I need this as a reminder. Think of of Paul. He'd been with them three years. He's reminding them, you can never forget this. You can never forget this. This is what it is to be spiritually alive. This is what it is to depend on Jesus. I'm now saved and alive spiritually. I have a new home because of Jesus. Isn't grace a wonderful thing? This is a beautiful truth. We progressively bear the fruit of faith. It is a uh, projection forward. The free gift of spiritual life, this free gift, this beautiful truth of grace, it does make the call of the church urgent. The word urgent, an adjective, dictionary definition, needing immediate attention. A synonym is life and death. Urgent earnest and persistent response to a critical situation is what the dictionary says about urgent. And I would say Paul is making it abundantly clear. This is the urgent message the church has to take forth. Um, Out in the foyer there, and I think at another place in this building, there's an AED, an automated, I think, external defibrillator. If you work anywhere. You'll probably be trained on one. All public places have one, maybe hanging on the wall. You may never know. It's kind of inconspicuous, but it is to, if someone goes into cardiac arrest, you strap it on, you follow these instructions and, and you know, it's going to maybe bring them, bring them back to life. Um, it's going to maybe keep them alive and, and they're not cheap, uh, you know, rarely used, but nonetheless, 
very good to have if a situation arises where there is a cardiac arrest or death could be a possibility. But so, so death, I mean, physical death, we've talked about it. One of the most serious, severe experiences for us, uh, for people. So why do we have AEDs, for example? Why do we take all these measures to prevent physical death? It's to, it's to prevent death and maybe restore the ability to live. Do we not see that spiritual death from, from this text and all throughout the scripture, spiritual death is far more serious, far more serious because it's eternal. And the effort and actions to respond should be more grand and more urgent Paul's answer to the problem of spiritual death. So what is the AED for spiritual death? It is God's word. It is the gospel. His answer to the problem of death is the gospel. And the church is God's delivery method. The church is God's delivery method of the answer, the solution to spiritual death. You saw in the video kind of the situation with lostness in Virginia just to kind of extrapolate that out to America, less than 18% of Americans attend church. That would be approximately 156 million unchurched. That would be the eighth most, most populous country in the world. So we need more churches. The solution is spiritual death. The delivery method is the church. The Great Commission says go and make disciples, not converts. Go and teach disciples to obey all that Christ has commanded. This is the role and ministry of the church. No other entity, no other people. So the over 80,000 people that live kind of in Bonaire and the surrounding community, they need the witness and the work of healthy churches to experience spiritual life as a result of receiving the gift of God's grace. Now I, I've been talking about healthy churches. Let me just offer a definition of a healthy church. A church that's made of sinners transformed by the grace of Christ. And those sinners that have been transformed by the grace of Christ, they regard the whole counsel of God's word as everything needed for life and godliness as they seek to obey King Jesus as Lord, Master, Savior. They take the Bible seriously. That's a healthy church. That's the only way to be a healthy church, to take the Bible seriously to the glory of God. Now, church planning, why start a new church? Why plant a church? It's not just to hopefully gather a bunch of people in order to be quickly self-sustaining or maybe to, uh, why would you start a church? It's not just to be an exciting new group in a community that may consist only of transfers from other churches. That's not the purpose. But the purpose is to be a people in a community that are devoted to the urgency of the ministry of reconciliation the exclusivity of the gospel and fidelity to the Bible. A new church should be a healthy church and the church should be planted to be devoted to the urgency of the ministry of reconciliation, the exclusivity of the gospel and fidelity to the Bible. Fidelity just means faithful. It didn't end in a Y, so put fidelity in there. So remember this passage started with and. The passage started with and. So look back with me just in those verses as we close. Verse 22, chapter 1, 22. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. So the free gift of spiritual life is Jesus. And the urgent call of the church is to represent him. 
to speak of him to all who are spiritually dead. So think about that. Think about that. Look at what God can do. He can make us who were spiritually dead, the body of Jesus, the body of Jesus. And why? So the world can be saved. He can make spiritually dead people alive and make them the church, the fullness of his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He can do that in your life today. If you're sitting there now thinking, and that spiritual death description lines up too much, please talk to me after. He can make you spiritually alive today. I started the sermon recounting some memories of growing up in local churches what a blessing people are, but just know that's not the primary purpose. I led a wedding ceremony this past week. It was not impromptu for the young couple, but I'd only been involved in the planning um, up until a few weeks ago. And in our first meeting, I asked the young lady why she wanted to marry the young man. She did not say, well, marriage will be fun. She did not say, well, marriage will be easy. She did not say, well, marriage will be comfortable and will help me financially. She did not say those things. She did say that she was convinced they could do more for the kingdom of God married than apart. Together, we represent the fullness of Jesus who fills all in all to our community. We continue the ministry of Jesus. That's the purpose. That's the purpose of the church. You may be saying like, Adam, like I totally believe that. It's pretty fundamental to Christianity. Well, Paul spent three years discipling the Christians in Ephesus before writing this letter. They'd heard it before. Why did he write it? Paul did not just sit back with this truth and praise God that he believed it. He knew this truth has to get out. And this is what he experienced. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four through 28. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul knew this truth, how one comes from spiritual death to life was an urgent message that no matter what, he wasn't going to stop getting it out. It's not just to sit back and believe and believe that praise God but Jesus is the ultimate example of moving to us in love with the life-giving truth of who he is and Paul shares it with us in Ephesians 4 9 and 10 in saying he ascended what does it mean but that he also descended this is Jesus into the lower regions the earth he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things God came down from his perfect home to dwell with us who were spiritually dead. He knew he would be mocked. He knew he would be beaten. He knew he would be crucified so that our dead hearts could be made new and we would be his people 
with his purpose to live out for the ages to come. He's what we need and only he could do what we needed. Jesus condescended to be with those who are spiritually dead to bring us to spiritual life. God doesn't call all of us to be veterinarians to the glory of God, but he does some. God doesn't call all of us to be electricians to his glory, but he does some. God doesn't call us all to be pastors, foreign missionaries, or to be a part of starting a new church, but he does call some. Is he calling you? Praise God for his power and his grace that we get to partner with him in this life.